and welcome to the Betsy Boss Podcast. Welcome back. We are here. It is mid-August, and we are today focusing on a theme of murder victims. And it's an interesting theme that you all probably haven't heard before, or you haven't heard all of these different murders grouped together in this way. But it was suggested to us by one of my best friends, Ellie Wright. Thank you so much, Ellie, for your suggestion. She um, forwarded this to us and thought it would be a great topic. And one of these murders was her idea. And we decided, you know what, we'll take that theme and we will run with it. And we'll group it together with some other similar cases because it turns out there's a whole host of maritime murders and honeymoon maritime murders (laughs) yes and i have to give props to Allie for the maritime murders tagline Mm -hmm. um my dear cousin who god bless her is a faithful listener (laughs) of the pod she um I gave her a little synopsis of what we were talking about today. And she was like, oh, of course, maritime murders. Yep. And I thought, wow, that is a snappy I know, that's little good. thing. I that's like a that a lot. Double on really nice, uh, whatever this thing is. Yeah. Somehow it made murder adorable. So mm-hmm. good job with that, Allie. Um, but I think we'll get right into it. Yes, we have a lot. We've got a lot to cover. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting. But I think we'll start off with our girl, Christy Chen. Yes. Um, All right. So Christy here, and this was the one, Ellie, again, thank you for suggesting this. Um, This one is coming out pretty much just now. So we don't have as much information on it, but we will go through kind of what we have so far. So there's a discrepancy in the age. She's either 36 or 39. I've actually seen some articles that literally used both um, ages in it too. So one of those two, she's either 36 or 39. She's a pharmacist or was a pharmacist in Memphis, Tennessee. She married Bradley Dawson, 38 on February 18th, 2022. So again, very recently. Chili. Mm, yes. And because it was chilly, where do you want to go on a honeymoon? Somewhere warm. Um, not the best idea in this situation though. So Bradley was a, an IT specialist at a nonprofit and the two of them, I mean, come on, a pharmacist, you're making bank. So they are going to Fiji for their honeymoon for a $3,500 a night resort at a $3,500 a night resort called Turtle Island Resort in the Yasawa Islands. Can you imagine paying that much a night? It must be really nice. I know. Well, it's, it's pretty incredible. It's, um, a 500 acre Island and it's limited to only 14 couples at a time. So you really have this Island, this beautiful location. You have like a Butler and your meals are included and prepared and just like incredible, incredible accommodations. I still can't imagine though, spending that much a night at a resort. No, no way. Yeah. Not even close. I could see like a, even a fraction of that. I would probably balk yeah, at. Same here. They arrived on July 7th to the resort. Um, the next day on July 8th, they were overheard having an argument at dinner. So this is, you know, the date to remember here. And then on the afternoon of July 9th, sadly, Christie's body was found inside their hotel room after the couple had missed both breakfast and lunch that day. So again, small number of people all the staff and everything. You miss two meals. That's the one thing I don't think I'd like either. I don't want people keeping tabs on me. I gotta be honest. Exactly. Well, and it's, I mean, I guess it's comforting in a sense because it's like people know where you are. So if you disappear, they probably figure it out pretty quickly. But if you don't want to be bothered or like watched on your private time, then it's probably not the, not the resort for you. Yeah. So clearly, all right, I'll justify that. Not the, not the price tag. It's the, you know, people keeping tabs on me. So, um, she was found on the bathroom floor covered in blood with multiple blunt force trauma wounds to her head and surprise, surprise, where's Bradley nowhere to be found. Uh, so Then the next day on July 10th, he is actually found 1.2 miles, which is just under two kilometers away on a remote island that was only inhabited by indigenous people. So he just took off into Fiji. Meanwhile, this cracks me up. 
Well, and what's so funny is like, how long do you think it would have taken for these indigenous people to be like, uh, it's him. Like we clearly identify. Oh, they, they were the ones they, they were, they were the ones that alerted authorities. pointed they were him like, out. Uh, this guy doesn't belong here. Well, they probably didn't want him on the Island freaking weirdo. And he seems like he's running from something. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. No, thanks. Get him out of here exactly like he's looking creepy like we don't want him here he's not one of ours like and he's just pulling up but he was clearly trying to flee from something because he had his wallet but not his apple watch or his phone so was hoping not to be tracked and he apparently fled on kayak which which is hilarious (laughs) but at night kayak in fiji like let me just like into the darkness kayak away like, yeah, that's brutal. And ooh. it's probably so dark out there. Yes. If you think about it, they'll occasionally have like on TikTok and stuff like that. They'll just show folks who like work at sea, you know, naval folks and people who just like do work kind of on the water um, and th- who are there and live there, you know, 24 seven. And th- so they're clearly there overnight. They'll show their view of the open water at oh, I know. night, like in the middle of the night. And it'll just be full blackness like yep. darkness as far as the eye can see you can't see two inches in front of your face so no. I don't know how he possibly could have made it I don't to know. this indigenous island where like who knows what their technology level is at that point if they are indigenous folks I don't know how much they kind of stick to you know the traditional lifestyle or if they you know, or more technologically savvy or more developed, but regardless, it's got to be a real tough time. You're just armed with a little cute vacation kayak and you're trying to get away. Yeah. Forget it. No, no. And it, it definitely, so it was the night of July 8th. So like we were talking about after the argument. And, um, so I guess technically the morning of July 9th, he was out of there between 2am and 3am. So it is dark. Like, dark yeah I I don't know um so his lawyer says that he fled because he panicked and was in shock he believed that the yeah, lawyer again okay I know saying the classic it could have been an accident mm. all right mm. yeah all uh, right like I don't think you can accidentally bludgeon your wife to death and then right. you accidentally flee because you're nervous I don't understand yeah it doesn't make sense to me and yeah accidentally you know, realize or remember to just take your wallet and leave anything that can, that can track you behind, like identify you. Yeah, exactly. Like totally makes sense. But so when he was arrested, he was reportedly uncooperative claiming that he was a U.S. citizen and refused to participate in a DNA test, which this type of stuff, I, I mean, if I were ever involved in stuff, I probably I don't know, maybe just because of our background, I would be like, I want to talk to a lawyer. I'm not doing anything until I do. So I, I, I always try to immediately. Yeah. I always try to like not hold that against people. Cause I think it's your right and you should take advantage of that. Right. So I don't know. Um, yeah, that's very true. I think it's hard to kind of draw any conclusions based on, you know, how, quickly people comply and stuff like that because look at Scott Peterson he was the uh-huh. perfect angel for the first half and then you know things started getting hairy later on we found out he was probably 99.9 percent mm-hmm. culpable so it's a hard to put a lot of stock in this and especially like you said with our background I think we would be the first to be like listen I'm not saying anything until I get the chance to consult with my lawyer And at that point, you know, you can have whatever you want that the lawyer says is appropriate, but it's hard to be like, you know, he's guilty because he wouldn't give up everything right away. Because again, it is his right to withhold. Yeah. I don't know. I just always hate that when people just automatically jump like, oh, they're guilty because they won't do whatever. It's like, you're being stupid. I don't know. Just, you know, now granted there's plenty of other things to draw, um, his guilt from like, oh, for well, example, the obviously. fact that he fled on kayak from his wife's bludgeoned body. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's pretty obvious. So DNA and here we go. So the judge did actually order him to give up DNA. So, I mean, you can invoke the right. Doesn't mean it's going to last anyway. Um, but he has since been arrested by the police in Fiji and first appeared in court on July 27th. His next appearance will be sometime in August. And I don't know, however, you know, depending on how it goes, he is looking at possibly life in prison. So crazy. 
pretty hefty sentence. Yeah. And obviously we're going to kind of keep abreast of what's going on in this case as it happens, especially since it is going to be happening sometime this month, the next big break in this case. So we will keep everybody updated and try to stay just right on top on because this is a really interesting case. And it's just, it struck us. I mean, it sounds bad to call it funny, but it's struck us as kind of funny that he escaped via kayak into the night. And I know Ellie had that feeling too. And she said the case over and just kind of couldn't believe that there was a kayak even involved with a murder. Oh my Something God. so, so serious that was paired with like, oh, well, he got in his getaway kayak and paddled Ooh, into the sunset. Getaway kayak. Yeah. Man reported in kayak. Be on the lookout. Um, so as we said, we found some similar cases to this one, which is kind of hard to believe because what are the odds that you're going to find kind of similar maritime murders or similar honeymooner murders? Because- what is a better time in a couple's marriage than the honeymoon period? I mean, that's why it's called the honeymoon period. Well, and there's actually another one that I left out because they were only engaged, not married. And a kayak was involved actually in that murder too. So it stay away from boats and waters and water and honeymoons, I guess is the lesson there. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. So our next case of honeymooner murder activity is about a 26-year-old woman from Alabama, and her name is Tina Watson. And Tina was really close with her family. She was actually adopted from Germany. And as, you know, an adoptee, she actually came to her adoptive family with a heart condition, but this condition was resolved in her youth. It was all taken care of, presumably. And in January 2003, she took up scuba diving, which was a big hobby for her future husband. And she ended up marrying Gabe Watson on October 11th, Hallie and Annie's birthday from the parent trap, oh, yeah. 2003. So Gabe and Tina leave for their honeymoon in Australia. And they picked Australia, obviously, because of the great scuba diving opportunities, both being avid scuba divers. Obviously, Australia just has a ton of different creatures, including sea creatures, and it is home to the Great Barrier Reef. So it's just a great place to scuba dive for these big scuba lovers. So on October 22nd, the couple went diving at a shipwreck in Townsville. And Gabe was a really great, you know, competent diver. He had over 50 dives under his belt. He's, you know, just a very, very accomplished deep sea diver. And the couple ended up meeting the crew the night before, and the crew suggested that Tina take an orientation session, like a little, you know, scuba diving lesson, because she was more new and she was more of kind of a novice diver than Gabe, who was a very experienced diver. And Tina actually dismissed the option. She said, you know what, there's no need for the orientation. I don't really feel like doing that. Um, I'm good to go mistake guys. I mean, always take the orientation. Well, and I think she probably thought she's with Gabe, who's such an experienced diver. They're obviously going to be staying right next to each other in the water. So if anything did go wrong, she's got someone there who knows what to do. So. Right. Like I'll probably be fine, but oh my gosh, like that. I just, you can feel the, the dread in the air when she refuses this session. So the day of the dive, The weather conditions were really good, but there was a little bit of a strong current going. And when Gabe and Tina first went in the water, they resurfaced not long after because Gabe was having a little bit of trouble with his dive computer. And just for those who don't know, including us, we didn't know before we did this episode, um, a dive computer kind of attaches to a diver's wrist. And it looks a little bit like an Apple watch, but maybe a little bit bigger. And, you know, it's important to have this piece of technology with you if you are doing a deep sea dive because it just tells you information about what's going on with the dive and the conditions and everything like that and kind of where you are. So once Gabe fixed his computer, the couple went back into the water and 
Within six minutes, one of the instructors in the group said he saw a diver on the floor of the sea, the sea floor. So yikes, what the heck is going on here? Then the diver, the um, diver instructor said it happened really quickly. There were no bubbles and he realized something was not right. So the instructor swims as quickly as he possibly could to the diver and pulled the diver to the surface. And in the meantime, Gabe had surfaced. So he's up, he's safe. It's the diver is not him. Right. And another diver who was still on the ship who hadn't gone into the water yet asked Gabe where Tina was. And Gabe said that they were around 15 meters deep. So 15, you know, that would be about 15 yards. Um, And Tina was overweighted and that she had panicked, was flailing and accidentally knocked his mask and regulator off. So because he had to fix it, um, which he claimed that he fixed it while he was still underwater. Yeah, I don't know enough about this this stuff, but I guess apparently you can fix it underwater without having to, I guess you can, there's probably something that can like suck the water out once you like get a suction back on or whatever. I don't know, but you could do it underwater. Yeah, which is crazy to even think about because I like think about you even lose a pair of goggles and it's oh, like a pain in the butt to fix them. And you, I could never fix them underwater. No. Forget it. No way. And that's like a simple pair of goggles that like a baby could wear. So right. I can't even imagine how you could fix your mask underwater. But Gabe says he did. And he said that as soon as he fixed his stuff, he looked back and he saw Tina sinking to the bottom. And he claims that he tried to swim toward her, but he realized she was sinking too quickly. So he swam to the surface to get help. Now, this kind of weirds me out because, and again, we don't know that much about diving, really much of anything about diving, but would a body really sink that quickly? Mm, Good thoughts. Good thoughts. I don't right? think so. I don't really know. Doesn't seem like it. I mean, I could mm. see if she was like really weighted down, right. but I mean, it's still a person who's buoyant, you know? So I don't know. It, it just seems weird to me. And this comes up later, like towards the end too. It, his description of her is she's panicking and flailing. Why is she sinking then? Like wouldn't panicking right, like, and wouldn't flailing you flail just, towards the surface? You'd at least get a couple kicks in like you would think. <laughs> exactly like Like, I would think that you would start to sort of float up or at least stay you know with the same place where you were exactly exactly anyway so he says he swam to the surface to get help and on his way up he said he passed two divers and he tried to indicate that there was an issue but they couldn't understand what he was trying to say now meanwhile again we don't know anything about diving but you would think that in diver code diver speak they would prepare for something like this because they right. know in advance, okay, we're going to be deep underwater. We don't really have a way of speaking to one another. So there must be a signal that somebody is in trouble or, you know, sinking or can't swim or something. Well, and I'm just thinking too, like when we used to go tubing behind a boat, you know, when we were younger, yeah, there, you know, there's like faster, slower, you'd like cut yeah. across your neck to tell it to stop. Like there's got to be a lot more intricate stuff that you know, you do underwater kind of underwater sign language type of thing. Exactly. It just seems weird that they, that he wouldn't have a way to communicate to them and they wouldn't understand that there was someone in trouble. Like that seems like a pretty basic signal that you'd have to learn. Um, so anyway, so he goes up to the surface and the diver that Gabe was communicating this whole story to, said that he didn't think that this sounded right because you it's custom that you never leave a diver alone and you know even if something like this happens like it's just that's not what you do and remember Gabe was a very experienced diver so if there's like a rule or a custom in diving that is known to all divers Gabe would have known that custom and should have observed the custom exactly exactly So once the other diver finally got Tina on board, they tried to resuscitate her for 45 minutes, which is just awful. Awful. All these other people standing around. um, There was one guy on there that I don't know if he was a diver or part of the crew, but he was medically trained. um, And it's just 45 minutes. I just can't, excuse me. I can't imagine. So the cops began to investigate 
but just like us, they're not divers. So without any real knowledge, they initially assumed it was just a weird accident. You know, someone panicked and things unfortunately went wrong. But a few days later, they met with Gabe. And again, this is in Australia. So he spoke with Australian authorities. Um, and he said that the day of the dive was actually the strongest current he had ever experienced in his dive career. So remember that he gives a lot of little tidbits away that are just, he's not a good liar. Let's just say that. <laughs> um, so he also said that his training, which again, apparently 50 dives is very extensive, um, was had never prepared him to bring an unconscious diver back to the surface. Which again, so, seems like the most important lesson in yes, diving. Exactly. And if like, he truly wasn't trained to bring an unconscious diver back, wouldn't that be a bad idea to go down with your feet or your new wife when she's a less experienced diver and could be victim to circumstances? Exactly. Exactly. Or maybe just a reason to even just take the little intro they offered you. Like exactly. Uh, yeah. No, it's all around bad stuff. If especially if that were the case. Um, so he was allowed to leave the country because there really wasn't anything to hold him on, no, not enough evidence. And he buried his wife upon return. So after his death, of course, just, you know, the husband, the husband always does it. The husband's always the killer and he's usually a creep too. So um, after her death, some of Tina's friends tried to remain friends with him, but they said he was very creepy. For example, and I, I snapped a picture of this, so I'll give it to you. We could put it up on our Instagram for his Christmas card that year, it was the front of it was a picture of him and Tina at their wedding. And then on the inside, this is the card that goes to Tina's best friend. He writes, who's that sexy guy next to Tina? Oh yeah, that's me with a smiley face. Ew, that what is just creep. repulsive. And also, is this the Christmas card that went out after yes. she died? Yes. Like, talk about tone deaf only a couple months too. Like if you think of when they were married in October, like, right. Who's that sexy murderer. That's yeah. me. Oh, and the, the victim, like Jesus. Ugh. Yeah. So obviously he's not doing a great job of concealing things. Thanks. Thankfully. And around the same time, some of the other divers were still bothered by, you know, what had gone on with Tina's death. And one of the divers actually reached out to Tina's parents. And um, when speaking with Tina's father, he said kind of what we were saying. He's never heard of a diver in full panic mode, serenely falling to the bottom of the ocean. Right. And he said only dead people sink, not people in a panic. So right. it, it, like, yeah, common sense there, even for non-divers. Well, yeah, exactly. Like if we could think of that, then like, come on. Yeah, exactly. Um, we're getting into some of our favorite themes that we've talked about on the on the podcast before with murder. So not long after that, Gabe sent a letter through his attorney to Tina's parents saying that he was uh, entitled to all of her belongings and demanded that they be handed over right away. Which is so, ridiculous. <laughs> also classic creepy husband like, yes. slash murderer who just like the grieving parents takes all that they have left of their child that he killed. He's awful in this. Like he is, he is a monster. This obviously, you know, kind of sparked something more in the, in the dad after hearing from this other diver and then taking Gabe's actions. And he decided that he needed to go to Australia to learn more. So while he was there, he actually spoke with the instructor, the one that dove in and pulled Tina back up to the surface. And the instructor said that Gabe didn't, this is terrible. There were two boats there for the dive and Tina was obviously pulled onto one boat. Gabe stayed on the other boat the entire time, the entire 45 minutes that they were trying to <gasps> resuscitate Tina. Unbelievable. And as soon as she was declared, they were like, we can't do anymore. You know, she's, she's gone. As soon as that happened, then he went over to the other boat. Like, <laughs> in, oh my God. It, like just incredible. You it, just, I don't know, crazy. Um, and so the dad kind of put it together and he's like, well, yeah, of course he's going to wait. He's worried. They're actually going to revive her. And then as soon as she's actually dead, then he knows he feels like he can go over because she's not going to be able to tell them what happened. 
Right. Um, so the autopsy stated that she had died of drowning, you know, pretty obvious. And during this investigation, all of her equipment was analyzed and actually determined to be working. So this really did present kind of a, what could have happened? You know, there wasn't right. really clear evidence of something. Wow. That is just so disturbing. Um, and Gabe is obviously just an asshole and a monster yeah. and just, ugh, was waiting for the moment to strike. God knows ugh, what the heck his plan was. So here we come upon the first crack in Gabe's story and Gabe described the incident with his dive computer that caused them to resurface. It caused him to, you know, come back up to the surface and listen and to this he, stupid story. Like you are an idiot, <laughs> right? Like bad liar. Alert. Yeah. So he said he realized he had put the battery in backwards after the computer alerted, he resurfaced. First of all, how dumb can you get? Okay. <laughs> and what a dumb lie to even tell. I know. I know. So, right. So then police tested this theory because of course they did. And they said that the computer didn't even work. Like, okay, yeah. it didn't even turn on if the battery was in backwards. Duh. So he would have known like... as soon as he like got in the water before he got in the water, really. Um, it wasn't like it would have worked for two seconds and been like battery in backwards. Right. Like what a dumbass. Yeah. There's no, or he would have gotten all the way down and realized that he turned it in backwards. There's no alert that's going to go off and say resurface. Like, right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So then, you know, we get some further information on his diving training Experts were saying that he actually could have really easily reached Tina with just a few kicks. So it makes no sense that she was sinking too fast. I mean, again, he described her sinking as like sinking like a rock and right. people don't sink that way because people are buoyant. Exactly. So even if she was weighed down by a lot of gear or something like that, like he claimed, she just, she's not going to sink that rapidly that an experienced diver that Gabe was wouldn't be able to get to her. Exactly. So that was really scary. And it just would have taken minimal effort to get to her. It also was confirmed that Gabe had been trained in bringing an unconscious diver to the surface. So clearly Shocker. that little lie came, uh, came to a head right there and Again, Gabe is just an idiot. And of course he was trained in that because right. why the hell wouldn't an experienced diver be trained in helping an unconscious diver? I'm sure that type of thing is exactly what you need to be trained for probably immediately. So like, why would Gabe downplay all of his training? Why would he say that, Hey, I wasn't trained in this very like simple part of basic. diving, <laughs> like clearly necessary, basic part of training. Why would he say that he didn't get that? Also, a picture of Tina on the ocean floor surface. Oh, and, it's awful. You know, this, it's so sad. And this was taken by another diver who snapped the picture. And you can see the instructor swimming toward Tina, who is just like on the floor. It's, it's just deeply sad and ugh, hard to look at, truly. And there's more cracks in Gabe's story because clearly there weren't enough already. Mm -hmm. Gabe said he swam extremely fast to the surface to get help, but he was wearing his <laughs> handy dandy yeah, dive computer, yep. his backwards battery dive computer. Mm -hmm. So you could see all of the stats. Like we said, the dive computer would have monitored all kinds of different statistics about the dive from you know how deep you are how fast you're going etc so remember he said he was about you know 15 meters or so at the time that this happened and it took Gabe two to three minutes to swim to the surface which experts said was a pedestrian speed so y'all this is a speed that you or I could swim. Exactly. He wasn't in any hurry to get to the top. He was no. just taking his little time. I mean, if you think about 15 meters, like it's far, but it's not that far. And your no. body is going to kind of float to the top naturally. So you can reach the top pretty Two darn to three quickly. Minutes. And Come on. 
Yeah, like two to three minutes. Are you serious? That's your that's your speed. That's how fast you try to save your wife. Okay. Right. Then we also know that the instructor who jumped in to save Tina swam double that length, which is approximately 30 meters to the ocean floor for those of you keeping count. And then all the way back up another 30 meters in half the time it took Gabe to swim a quarter of the distance. So just to give you an idea, I mean, again, they're both experienced divers. They should have been, you know, operating at about the same speed. And it took this person a quarter of the time to swim at a life-saving, quote-unquote, extremely fast, as Gabe said, pace. Right. So, you know, think what you will, but it sounds like Gabe was taking his sweet time. Exactly. So after Tina's burial, additional weird things ended up happening. Flowers that were left on Tina's grave started to mysteriously disappear. Oof, creepy. Then Gabe served notice that he would be moving Tina's grave to a plot approximately 100 yards from the current location that he owned. What the fuck? I know. Why? It's just a power move, like, against her parents. Oh, yeah. And just, like, I can control her even though she's dead and gone and exactly. even though I killed her. Exactly. So scary. So Ugh. after he moved the grave, the flowers continued to disappear. And Tina's father attached the flowers to the grave with a bike <laughs> lock, which is hilarious. It's yeah. such, like, a straight up aggressive move from dad where he's probably like this fucker like he totally killed my daughter and on top of that he's gonna like try to pull this shit with you know taking the flowers what's going on yeah so you know it just it's ridiculous so police actually set up surveillance and bum, bum, bum they catch Gabe with these (laughs) giant cutters and he's been cutting down the flowers he's been taking them and he even tried to cut down the bike wire and it's just ridiculous what the hell is this guy's problem yeah yeah i mean it's obvious like it's again all the telltale signs of the husband did it another witness comes forward to police who was on the boat when this incident occurred and he was actually a doctor and was one of the ones who tried to revive tina when she was brought to the surface He said that he saw an interaction between two divers underwater. And uh, so again, remember, he was on the boat even before she was brought up. And based on the timing and circumstances, police could determine that it could only be Gabe and Tina that he was seeing underwater. He said that Tina looked like she was in distress and was flailing her arms. Gabe comes over and embraces her in what he described as a bear hug. Oh my God. Yeah. It's scary stuff. Um, Like once he describes this whole thing, it kind of puts the last piece together. He said that this bear hug is kind of coming to give you a hug, but your arms are above my arms essentially. So I'm like hugging you underneath your armpits. And then my hands kind of go around the midsection of your torso around your back. So that's kind of what he described it. And he said that this embrace happened for about 30 seconds. It's a long underwater hug. Long hug. Yeah. Long (laughs) underwater hug. Yeah. Not a, not a good underwater hug because then they separate and Gabe comes to the surface as this witness sees Tina move less and less as she then floats to the bottom. Again, another big crack in Gabe's story because he thinks he's just smarter than everyone and no one's going to see what he did. He he stated that he was never closer to Tina than an arm length away. Clearly a bear hug here. A lot closer than that. Exactly. And this kind of puts the theory all together because up to this point, I was like, I still don't know if her equipment was working correctly. Like, how did he kill her? And there was nothing in her body. Like, what did he do? And this is really insane. Um, So the theory is Gabe planned the whole incident with the dive computer as a reason to get Tina to come back up to the surface with him. This would allow the other divers in the group to get a little, you know, further ahead than them, obviously fewer witnesses. Gabe and Tina dive back in and he also takes her kind of far away, again, just kind of limiting the amount of witnesses around. 
And he initially kind of swims behind her and turns off her air behind her. Oh God. This is when she actually does start to panic. And this is the one thing in the story that police believe was true, um, that she actually fought back and did really knock off his mask and his regulator. So he, you know, is fixing that. And she does start to, I mean, that is just like the most terrifying death. You're underwater and your air is gone. Like, oh, I can't even imagine. Just a nightmare. Oh my God. And so wait, so here's the thing that's confusing to me. So she fights back. She knocks his mask off, whatever. And, you know, he gets everything fixed somehow underwater. God knows how. But at this point, you know, he, we think that he turns her air back on. Do we think that he turned her air back on so that like witnesses would think, you know, there was nothing wrong with the equipment and that like, you know, what, what do we think? Yeah. So he, um, yeah, exactly that. So he swims back down. Um, you know, he fixes himself and then realizes exactly what you're saying. He has to turn her air back on so that when they look at her equipment, when they look at whatever, it's like everything's in working order. She, oh, she must've just panicked and that caused her to die. So the bear hug, <laughs> I mean, I'd die of panic underwater. I'm not, I'm never trying oh, to do it. Oh, I would it. too. Forget it. Oh, like no way, no way. Um, but so the, the bear hug that the doctor sees is actually him like realizing, oh, I got to go down. Oop, got to turn her air back on quick before anybody gets to her. So he does actually swim down to her, turns her air back on. That's the bear hug and then swims up to the surface, which is sick. Like this is just such an incredibly terrible way to murder someone like, oh, it's just awful. Yeah absolutely awful and so here's my question too so if he turned the air back on why do we think like do we think at that point she was already gone or close to gone and that that's why she began to sink and you know lose consciousness and go to the bottom of the ocean I think so I think he waited like and again I it's interesting because there a lot of times in you know stories the murderer will have some parts that are actually true, you know, in their, in their, um, confession or, you know, when they're talking to police. And so the fact that he said she started to just sink like a rock, he probably waited for her to die and then, you know, swam down and turned it back on. Right. Oh my gosh. That's so scary. What a horrible, horrible thing. And to be able to like do that to your wife and I know to like watch that happen to her. It's just terrifying. It's awful. So even with this witness who saw the bear hug, saw all of this happen, it's a very circumstantial case that we have here. I mean, what is this guy's motive? I mean, aside from being a sick fuck, you know, who murders their new wife and who is capable of watching their wife die like this. I mean, it's just brutal. So we do have more information from Tina's father. He said that a few weeks before the wedding, Tina came to him and told him that Gabe wanted her to change life insurance to maximum. Classic life insurance. uh, Always check the life (laughs) insurance. Yes. Literally every time we've talked about it before, always, always, always check who the beneficiary is on the life insurance because not only did Gabe want Tina to change her life insurance to the maximum amount available, he also insisted that she make him the beneficiary. Yeah. And if somebody ever comes to you asking you to increase your life insurance, I'd be very Run. suspicious. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, what do you have planned? Cause this is not good. Well, exactly. And life insurance. I mean, for those of us who I don't know, I don't know if you exist, but life insurance only helps people once you're gone, right? It's insurance on your life. So you don't reap any benefits from your life insurance policy. It's your loved one, your, you know, person, whatever, who is going to reap the benefit. So they're not trying to help you if they're trying to get you to increase your life insurance. They're trying to help them damn self. Exactly. 
Yeah. So this is very interesting information. And at the time, Tina said she didn't have time to change her life insurance with the wedding coming up. And her father said, you know what, just tell him you took care of it. And when you get back, you'll actually take care of it and you'll get it all in place. When Gabe and Tina came to Australia, Gabe was actually under the impression that he was the beneficiary of the life insurance policy and a big one at that. And after her death, Gabe came to her company and the former company and was right away sniffing around that insurance policy Mm -hmm. to ask about you know, hey, what's the deal with her life insurance policy? Who's it going to go to? I definitely have no idea. So, and it was $160,000, but luckily I I suppose he wasn't the beneficiary. Nope. Nope. So, I mean, one thing, at least she got him in the end there. Thank God. Like at least that's something, but how awful. Um, So eventually we do get to trial in Australia that began on June 5th, 2009. He was sentenced to, to four years in prison and with three years suspended. A later appeal added six months to his original minimum for a total of 18 months. So like a slap on the wrist for killing your wife. Um, right. The trial was then brought to court in Alabama on February 13th, 2012 is awful this was actually tina's 35th birthday too which is so sad so sad a lot of the evidence um presented in australia was not able to be presented in the united in the u.s case so unfortunately he was acquitted in this case and today he is remarried to his wife that he began dating in 2006 so (gasps) Three years wow. after looking like a motive there. Yep. Wow, and she's that's... she's just all along though, like she's by his side through all of this and still married him. Like what a nightmare. Oh my yeah. gosh. Well, that story, if that didn't freak you out, I think the next one will put you off honeymoon, you know, honeymooning and boating. <laughs> yeah, in particular. Permanently. Yes. Yeah. So our next case is that of George Smith, and this is a slightly different case because it, and we're going to do a little spoiler here, it's not the spouse who is the murderer. So it's a little bit of a different story in that sense, but very similar to these other, these other cases in the sense that it is a maritime murder. That's right. Um, Our dear George Smith is a 26-year-old from New England, and he married a teacher, Jennifer Hagel, on June 29, 2005. And the couple departed for a 12-day Mediterranean cruise with 2,000 passengers. And the ship was known as Brilliance of the Seas, and it departed Barcelona in late June. Sounds really lovely. Mm -hmm. They're going to be going to the French Riviera, Florence, Italy, and Santorini, Greece. So really just a nice uh, set of spots over here. So on day five, the couple actually planned their own trip to Mykonos in Greece. And this is really a sign of the times. In Mykonos, they actually encountered the very famous at the time, Tara (laughs) Reid, who was there on site filming a movie. And George actually, (laughs) right? Hey, George actually got a picture with Tara Reid, which are some of the last of him alive. Spoiler alert. Yeah sad but i just thought tara reed good god that's a name that has yeah that's a blast from the past (laughs) yeah yeah that's an old one but on july 4th the couple had dinner at the steakhouse on board the ship called chops and yes very um very creative there after dinner they uh decided to go to the casino on board and at some point i don't know why they keep mentioning this in the i watched a um documentary on this but uh at some point they went back to the room where george took off his sports coat i guess maybe because it's there's evidence photos and one of them has like his sports coat on the back of the chair but they made a big point about it i don't think it's a really big point but oh well um when they came back down to the casino they met a group of four young men these men were in their late teens and early 20s and they were jeffrey 
Jeffrey and Zachary Rosenberg, who were brothers, their cousin Gregory Rosenberg, and Greg's friend Josh Kaufman. The last image of George actually on the security camera was him and Josh in the casino. So this group of guys is very important to the whole story. So George and Josh actually go back to Josh's room for drinks and oh, not the best choice. I wouldn't choose it, but they drink absinthe that the four had smuggled on board. After that, they go back to George's room where he grabs more money for gambling And when the group returns to the casino, several people overhear George, who at this point is completely drunk, proclaiming loudly that he has $17,000 in cash in the safe in his room. Not a good move. Yikes. Not the best thing to yell about, George. No. Let's just wave that, make that known to the whole casino of all places. Right. Where, oh my gosh. And murders happen at the casino all the time because people win and then, you know, chase them down for the money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we learn what happened next through statements from Josh's attorney. The group of four men, George and Jennifer, go to the disco on another floor. And at the disco, they're joined by a slimy character the floor manager named Lloyd Botha. Um, Yikes. Yeah, he's a creep for sure. Just knew it from his name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Lloyd had his arm around Jennifer and was coming on very strongly to her, very inappropriate. The group sits down and continues to drink this absinthe and um, that they brought up. Jennifer and George eventually have a, fl- have a fight And some of the group says that Jennifer left with Lloyd at this point. The disco ends up finishing up shortly before 4 a.m. So in a late night for me anyway. And George needs help getting back to the room. He is hammered and staggering. So two of the men from the group, the Rosenbergs, um, essentially carry him under their arms. You know, they, they take him, you know, kind of from the armpits and carry him back to the room like Weekend at Bernie's. And the group enters George's room at 3.52 a.m. And we know that because of the room key swipe, which thank God we have that information. And they realize that Jennifer is not in the room. So with George still needing assistance to be carried, they take a quick lap just to see if they can find her. (laughs) Which I do have to, I don't mean to laugh, but like it, to me, it's like, it's kind of funny, like a test dummy. Like they're like, just dragging him around the floor. Like, yeah. Like, okay, George, time to go look for Jennifer. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, Like, oh my God. Oh, brings back memories of law prom. (laughs) Oh, but yes. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, so basically they do a quick lap and they get back again to the room, which again, by key swipe, we know this at 4.01 a.m. So they didn't try for that long. No. And the group of guys says that they got George back into bed and a couple in the neighboring room said that they heard voices saying, settle down, George, and good night. And at this point, the boys leave the room and a neighbor looked out and says, okay, I see three boys leaving the room. And it's really possible that the last boy, the fourth of the group, mm-hmm. already rounded a corner in front of the other three, wasn't visible or something, or right. just that the witness was mistaken. Um, but the neighboring room says that they hear someone then speaking in a conversational manner, but no one is responding. There's only the one voice speaking. They then hear slamming cabinets like someone's looking for something. I'm sure you can't imagine what. Yeah, I wonder. Then they hear someone, uh, right? It can't be anything (laughs) important. Nothing Not 72,000 of them, (laughs) right? Then they hear somebody out on the balcony and then silence for about three minutes. After that, they hear a hard thud. And the belief is that this thud was actually George Ooh. falling onto the awning over the lifeboats two decks below. Oh, it's awful. He then fell overboard. This is just brutal. Yeah. So during this time, the guys who dropped George off said they went back to their room and ordered a ton of room service. So they were back in their room by 5.03 a.m., which is about an hour after they put George to bed. Right. Um. So next morning on the balcony, this is 
it was kind of funny watching this because it was classic, like early 2000s, a teen girl out there with her digital camera out on um, her balcony, taking some pictures. And again, here's another one with pictures, some red blood staining on the awning below, which is just like, all right, grab that picture, I guess. I don't know. Um, So the crews start checking the rooms right above that because obviously this is suspicious and they see that George and Jennifer's room is empty. A page goes out over the ship speakers for them and Josh, one of the group of four guys, hears it. Um, He sticks his hat out of his door and advises his cabin attendant that George had a lot to drink last night so he may not have heard the page. Jennifer is then located um, and she's actually down in the spa getting a massage so she's at least accounted for but george is not and it doesn't sound like she's super concerned she's uh you know in for a day of pampering and just enjoying herself down at the spa exactly yeah a little suspicious there but again we gave the spoiler up front it wasn't the spouse so you know rest assured Exactly, exactly. So Jennifer gets escorted to a room where Josh is. And she said that she doesn't know where George is. She's clueless as to where he could be. And she says he wasn't in the cabin when she woke up. And which, again, why wouldn't you be more concerned about your spouse if you wake up alone and he's not there? It's your honeymoon, but whatever. Um, and at this time, an early theory is that George went on the balcony to smoke a cigar and fell overboard. Um, this is the less nefarious theory than we end up with for sure. Right. And we can see from pictures of the room that it looks messy, but it doesn't look like there was any kind of struggle or anything like that that happened there. And there were two blood spots on a bed sheet. And I'll leave it to you to describe these, but that was all they found in terms of creepiness. Yeah, it it kind of reminded me of like if you've ever seen Making a Murderer on the um on the steering wheel, I guess it is. They have two little like they have like a little blood spot that they find, and it almost looks like a Q-tip. Like somebody took a Q-tip and just kind of dipped it in blood and like gave a little swipe. Almost Ooh. looks like two of them, but like very tiny. Almost could be nothing. Yeah. Almost reminds me of our favorite thing. If you get a bug bite and scratch it in your bed, like you may cause it to bleed a little bit, like, you know, reasonable explanation for why you would have a little bit of blood on your blood, on on your bed sheet. Yeah. So nothing really super concerning at this point. And apparently this incident did not slow the four men down. So it turns out that a few days later, a woman on board accused the men of gang rape, this crew that George was hanging out with before. And, you know, so what the heck? I mean, these guys are on the prowl. Clearly they're not like concerned or set back at all by George's, whatever happened to George at this point, we don't know. Um, they're just, they're out here and, you know, getting nasty and whether they did it or not. I mean, clearly they're a known group of prowlers around the boat group for sure. Yeah. An element. So when the ship finds out the folks, you know, the, um, authorities on the ship, they kicked the men and their families off in Naples and good for them. I gotta say like, Right now, this is the funniest part to me is the fact that the men said it was consensual. Oh my God. I know. Great defense. Like, okay, exactly. Like, come on now. And uh, all four of you, I don't think so. Right. Like, okay. Yeah, yeah. It was consensual four on one. Like, yep. thanks a lot. So yeah. So they kicked them off. They're, they're off the boat now and they're somewhere in Naples. Yeah. So that was kind of the end of their trip there. But when they get back to the States, the FBI got involved in Georgia's case, and they believed that their best bet at answers was to get Josh to talk. Now, remember, he was the friend of the cousin. So the other three guys are related. So they're thinking, Josh, you know, maybe the best bet because he's got the least connection to the other three. So in his statement, he says that Jennifer had no involvement. She had no idea about the night and indicated 
that, and he indicated that they should take a look at our old buddy Lloyd. Lloyd has a girlfriend that lives with him on board because remember he's part of the crew. And she says that he was back at their room at 3.25 a.m. I'm assuming the key swipes caught this as well because everything else was, you know, they mentioned the key swipe. So I'm assuming his key swipe caught it as well. But so that leaves, where was Jennifer? If she didn't leave with him, she kind of has no idea what was going on. Other witnesses at the disco said that she actually did not leave with Lloyd. She left alone and sounds like she had a pretty bad night herself. A cleaner said he encountered her on the elevator and asked her if she needed any help. He said she got off on her floor, but she walked the opposite direction of her room. And then ship staff found her passed out in an alcove and escorted her back to her room. Again, the key at 4.57 a.m. And at this time, George would have already been overboard. So at this point, the authorities rule out Jennifer and Lloyd as suspects. We learn later from Josh that Greg left the room before the group ordered the room service. And additionally, the ship had no record of them ordering the room service. Mm, suspicious. Suspicious, suspicious. And they did have call logs on their phone to the kitchen at that time. And no staff remembers preparing or delivering food to that room. So sounds like that alibi is starting to unravel. A little suspicious there. Right? Not so great. Um, so it's tough because we don't really have a real conclusion to this case. Gregory Rosenberg was later arrested on drug charges. So he wasn't arrested for this, but he was arrested for something else, which kind of makes you feel good that at least he got in trouble for something and was doing his time. Um, but then after he got released, he was killed. Yeah. Sounds to me like this group could have been a lot more, I don't know, nefarious or I don't know, just, just a lot worse than initially realized, you know, thinking four young men, late teens, early twenties, and then kind of looking what happened later in their lives. They could have been wrapped up in some stuff for sure. Yeah. What a weird group. My God. So the cops indicated that the fact that Greg was killed right after he was released shows that he was clearly being targeted and you know, that somebody was after him and, you know, just wanted him dead. So it it just goes to show you, I mean, these guys were hanging in kind of a weird crew and were up to no good. And it sounds like this George fellow just got mixed up with the wrong group. I still think it's possible though, that he could have just gone over by himself. It's very sad, but well, it sounds like the partying that they were doing that night, like they were just doing a bunch of crazy stuff. He could barely walk. Right. I mean, to me, it doesn't sound like it would be that crazy for him to just go right overboard by himself. Yeah. And, and the fact that like the room was messy, but not ransacked and the neighbors heard one voice kind of, you know, speaking with no response back right before somebody goes out on the balcony. I mean, it's really sad and tragic and kind of a warning against getting that crazy drunk, especially on a a cruise ship. But I don't know. That's to me is kind of how I lean, but I don't know. The, the four guys are kind of suspicious too. Yeah, absolutely. And even if that's how you lean, at least you're not leaning off the side of the boat. (laughs) Right. At least I lean in towards the cabin, not away. Exactly. It's a lesson to all of us. Yes. Yeah. Don't go smoke a cigar on the balcony after you at like four in the morning. Just don't. Yeah. After like 10 absinthe shots. So I don't know. Thank you again, Ellie, though, for suggesting this topic. It definitely set us down a really interesting rabbit hole with all these other cases. Yep. The maritime murders, people just know who you're marrying before you get married to them yes, because right. my god yeah and stay away from ships and kayaks cruises and scuba diving <laughs> exactly thanks so much for listening to today's episode of betsy boss podcast if you'd like to find us online we're on facebook at betsy boss podcast on instagram at betsy boss podcast on twitter at betsy boss pod And our email is BetsyBossPodcast at gmail.com. 
Also, Betsy Boss is now on both iTunes and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and comment. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) 